All right, Happy New Year to everyone. Uh, greetings to our Traditions venue and our Zoe's campus. Uh, you know, one of the things that I love about this time of year is that there are always great movies out, right? I mean, our family went to see Frozen the other day, really fun. Uh, my wife and I uh, saw Saving Mr. Banks, which was fantastic. Um, I, I wanted to see The Hobbit, but my kids all went with someone else. So, uh, but we, we all love movies. We, we love stories of adventure and, and romance. It, it, it is something that is universally true for us as humans. I mean, as little kids, we, we beg our parents, tell me a story. As adults, we pay nine bucks a ticket to watch a story. I mean, why is that? It's not just about being entertained. There is a reason we love stories. These stories momentarily take us out of our mundane lives and awaken in us a desire to be a part of a bigger story, a story of meaning and, and, and purpose and adventure and, and significance. So why do we long for that? Because we were created that way. You see, God is writing this amazing story, and he invites us to be a part of his story. I mean, if there is one story that is critically important for us to know and, and be familiar with, it is this story, God's story. In his story, we discover the, the, the meaning and the purpose of life. We discover our significance and, and our longings and our brokenness. We discover love and, and true hope. I mean, God's story is the most powerful story of all. So where can we learn about God's story? Where, where can we, we hear the unfolding of this adventure? Well, one of the best places to look is in the first book of the Bible, the book of Genesis. In the book of Genesis, we see God's story, the story he is writing. And it is, it is an incredible story. It is a, a story that is essential for us to know because it impacts all of our lives. And so what I want to do today is, is kind of do an overview of the book of Genesis so that we understand God's story. This, this overview is going to provide an important foundation for us in a new teaching series that we're beginning um, from the book of Genesis. A few years ago, if you were around here, you remember we started working our way through this amazing book, and we got all the way to the Jacob story, but we didn't finish the book. And so starting today, we're jumping back into Genesis. For the next several weeks, we're going to be looking at the final 15 chapters or so of this book, focusing primarily on the story of Joseph, which is an incredible story of how God uses adversity. Wow. Okay. Thank you. Now I can't see anything. No, but uh, an incredible story of how God uses adversity to transform us into the people that he wants us to be. Thus the name of this series, Under Construction. That's where we're headed in the weeks to come. But today, again, I want us to focus on the question we began with just a moment ago. What is God's story? Now, in the Bible, there, there's another word given to this story. It's the word gospel. See, the gospel really is God's story. It is his plan for us. It is his plan for humanity. And so what I want to do today is to use the book of Genesis to tell God's story. And in doing so, we're going to see why this story is so important and life-changing. In God's story, 
i.e. the gospel, there are four essential elements or movements. And if you understand these four things, you understand the gospel and you can communicate the gospel to others. So let's look at these four elements of God's story. The first element is creation. Creation. God's story begins with creation. The first sentence in the Bible is incredibly powerful and packed with significance. Read this out loud with me. Genesis 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. This is where the story begins, with God. In the beginning, God. God was before, period, (laughs) He has always existed. We are not the center of the universe, even though we sometimes think we are or act like we are. God is the center of the universe. Everything draws its meaning from him. This story is ultimately about him, not about us. We are accountable to him. He is worthy of our worship. In the beginning, God. But one day, this God chose to create. He took the initiative and chose to create the heavens and the earth. Chapter 1 of Genesis tells us that he created light. He created the sun and the moon and the stars. He created the atmosphere. He created the oceans and the plants and and the animals. Now, why is this important? It's important because it communicates purpose. From page 1 of God's story, we learn that all of this, all of this is here, not by accident. Some scientists will will argue that the planet Earth basically won the cosmic lottery. You know, we just lucked out in having the sun just the right distance from the Earth and in having just the right amount of ocean and and land and and, and atmosphere for survivability and, and just the right amount of gravity and having water as a soluble substance and on and on and on and on. They look at this Earth and conclude that we just got lucky. But that's not God's story. His story is radically different. It is not about luck, about about chance. It's about God choosing to create. Which means that every created thing has a purpose in God's story. In Genesis 1, we see God periodically stepping back to look at what he had created and look at what he had made. And each time he declares, that is good. That is good. I mean, God's creation is good. It has a purpose. And this is why we are to care for this planet. It is good. It is a part of God's creation. So after creating all this other stuff, there is something more, something else that he creates. This really becomes the pinnacle, or is the pinnacle of his creation. Genesis 1, verses 26 and 27. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Imago Dei, the image of God. We as humans are uniquely created in the image of God. We bear the image of God in a way that the rest of creation does not. And that includes our capacity to, our capacity to worship, to reason, and to love, and to choose. We aren't 
animals living by instinct. We are humans created in God's image, which means that every human being has purpose. From the unborn baby in her mother's womb to the elderly man dying of emphysema in a nursing home. Every human being is created in God's image for a good purpose. So in Genesis 2, then, we see this being played out in the life of Adam and Eve. We see Adam tending the garden and enjoying the fruit of his labor. We see Eve's presence bringing this, bringing this profound union and, and relational connection. Everything is as it should be, according to God's design. This is so important that we understand this foundational element in God's story because often we hear people blaming God for how awful this world is. Sometimes people attribute to God things like cancer or, or and a disease or war or whatever as if these things were designed by God, that somehow he is the author of evil. But that is to totally miss the fundamental aspect of God's story. It begins with creation a creation that is good and joy-filled and wonderfully complete. That's what reflects the heart of God, a creation that is good. And this is why within every human being, in the midst of this sin-stained planet, there is a longing for something better. We long for God's original design. We long for the Garden of Eden where there are healthy relationships between us and God and between us and, and each other. God's story begins with creation, where all creatures chose to trust him and live in alignment with his good purposes. Now, unfortunately, that all changed in Genesis chapter 3, and it's there that we see the second element in God's story. And that, of course, is the fall. <clears throat> the fall. In Genesis 3, we see how God's good creation, how this good relationship with him was tragically and thoroughly damaged. God had told Adam and Eve that they could enjoy anything in the garden except one tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. God knew that if they ate of that, all hell would break loose. And so he forbid them from doing so. Well, Satan comes along, comes on the scene, and he starts to tempt Eve to do the unthinkable, to disobey this loving God who created them and provided everything for them. So Satan whispers to Eve, did God really say to avoid that tree? I mean, the only reason he told you to stay away from that tree is that he knew if you ate it, you would become like him. And he doesn't want that. He doesn't want your best. All lies portraying God as a spoiled sport rather than a loving creator. And Adam and Eve believed the lies. And they chose to eat, the one, eat from the one tree that God said not to eat from. Into this perfect environment of trust and love and joy entered a completely new response. Rebellion. Self-centeredness. Conflict. Suddenly, Adam and Eve are hiding from the God who created them. They were ashamed, and they started to then blame each other. I mean, in Genesis 3, we see this profound and tragic picture of what sin does. It causes us to hide, 
It causes us to blame, shift the blame, right? It causes us to fight with other people, to assert our self-will. From, from that moment on, sin became part of us as humans. We are born into it. No one has to teach us how to be selfish. This is a part of us. And this is why our world is so broken. It explains, Genesis 3 explains why humans are constantly fighting and nations are killing each other. And why governments let their own people starve. And why we choose loving things over loving people. And why we get angry and why we're addicted. There is something wrong with us. There is something broken about us. And here's the deal. Deep down, we all know this. (laughs) We know we're broken. We know there's something wrong with us. We know we're not the kind of people that we long to be. We we try and hide our shame by keeping busy or by buying more things or by abusing drugs or alcohol or escaping into pornography. All of this is the result of Genesis 3, the fall. I mean, from my perspective, Genesis 3 best explains what's wrong with our planet. I don't know if, I mean, who else is offering a reasonable explanation for the presence of evil? Who else is offering? Science, evolution, who offers a a reasonable explanation for the presence of evil about why we do the things we do? The Bible tells us what's wrong with us. Even though we were designed for good, for perfection, for the Garden of Eden, We chose to rebel against God. And since then, sin has been our master. No matter how many New Year's resolutions we make, we are still broken. (laughs) We are still self-centered. We still get angry and fight. We, We lie to people to make ourselves look good. We are on a continual search for fame, for wealth, for accolades, for recognition, for success, for sexual pleasure. All in an attempt to find joy and meaning. And none of it satisfies the ultimate longing in our soul. Why? Because the ultimate longing in our soul goes back to scene one in God's story. Creation. We are created for a relationship with God, to live in alignment with his good purposes. And yet we are unable to do that because of the fall. We can't do that because of the fall. The fall resulted in the pervasiveness of sin in our very nature. So while we long for wholeness, we are unable to get there not good. I mean, if the story ended there, we are sunk. (laughs) We are sunk. But thankfully, God's story doesn't end there. The third element in God's story is redemption. I mean, being the incredible God that he is, his heart is not to just leave things the way they are after the fall. No, God's heart is to restore what has been broken by the fall. His heart is for redemption. He wants to make things right again. And so he orchestrated a plan to do just that, a plan to fix what is broken in us, a plan to remove the barrier between us and God. Now, what's what's absolutely fascinating is that there are glimpses of this very plan immediately after Adam and Eve sinned. 
immediately after they have rebelled against God and are, 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 are hearing from God the consequences of that rebellion, immediately after that, God says something absolutely amazing to the serpent, to the enemy who ultimately caused all this to happen. Look at Genesis 3, verse 15. God says to the serpent, and I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. Even Jewish scholars have long acknowledged that this verse is the initial unveiling of God's plan to redeem what the enemy has done. It's amazing. So what's the plan? Well, the word enmity is very important for us to understand. It is not simply referring to an occasional conflict or a minor disagreement. No, this word has a moral dimension to it. It means significant hostility and outrage against each other. So right in this moment when Eve has just voluntarily sided with Satan, God says to Satan, I'm going to fix that. I'm going to put enmity, a moral indignation, a hostility, not just between you and Eve. I'm going to put a hostility between your offspring and hers. Now, what is God saying? He is revealing for us his redemptive plan. God's plan is to create a people for himself, a people who share his heart and his values, a people who hate the work of Satan as much as he does. That's the plan. And think about how radical an idea this is in light of what had just happened. Adam and Eve have both voluntarily sided with Satan. They have chosen to disobey, to not trust God. Sin has been unleashed so that now their offspring are going to be born into sin as well. At this point in human history, humanity's allegiance is no longer to God. The offspring of Adam and Eve will be freely choosing rebellion, sin, self-centeredness, idolatry, all of which are very much a part of Satan's agenda. To think that at this moment, when Satan has seemingly won a decisive victory in terms of the hearts of humanity, to think that at that moment God says to him, I'm going to do something that will change all of that. I'm going to create a people who will freely choose to love me and to reject you and all of your evil works. I'm going to create a people who have my heart and my values. So how is this plan going to be accomplished? Well, this is where it gets really interesting. God says in verse 15 of Genesis 3, he will crush He's talking to Satan, he will crush your head and you will strike his heel. On the surface, this doesn't seem to make much sense. Who is the he? It's not Satan. God is talking to Satan. So he will crush your head. And the he is clearly singular. While the previous part talked about offspring, plural, this is singular. One person is being described. One of the offspring of Eve is going to do something very powerful. He is going to crush Satan's head. But this will not happen without Satan doing something as well. It says that Satan will strike his heel. 
Both strike and crush here are actually the same Hebrew word. But the critical difference is in position. A man standing can crush a snake's head. But a snake can only strike at a man's heel. See, in this verse, God is revealing the means by which he will create a people for himself. That means is through an offspring of Eve. Now, the word offspring literally means seed, which is very interesting when you realize that in conception, the woman doesn't contribute the seed. She contributes the egg. So one day, God is going to contribute the seed, i.e. virgin birth, right here in Genesis 3, and a child will be born that will crush Satan's head, that will destroy his work in one fail swoop. That child is Jesus. Born of a virgin, barely escaping slaughter as a child when Herod heard that a king had been born. Jesus then grew into an adulthood. He demonstrated incredible power over Satan's realm when he lived here on earth, healing disease and, and raising the dead and bringing a message of a new kingdom, one, one where life and joy and righteousness and peace and love are the values. And then Jesus' life leads to this incredible climax, just as we would expect from Genesis 3.15, Right? This verse tells us that Satan will strike his heel. When Jesus hung on the cross, Satan was getting exactly what he wanted. The death of God's son. Satan had filled Judas' heart and the result was betrayal and ultimately death. A fairly significant blow, it seemed. But on the third day, Jesus rose from the dead and crushed Satan's head a fatal blow that Satan will never recover from. Oh, he is still active, but now there is one huge difference. Through the work of Christ on the cross, God has provided a way to create a people for himself, a people who will hate what the enemy does. A people whose heart is turned, is turned toward God in love and, 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 and adoration. I mean, this is God's plan for redemption. Through the cross and the resurrection of Jesus, what was unleashed through the fall can now be restored. Our sins are paid for, so there's no barrier between us and God. Through the cross, we can forgive others so that we don't have to live in conflict. Through the resurrection power of Jesus, we are freed from the power of sin. That's God's plan. Now, there's something very important to notice about this plan of redemption in God's story. This is critical. The entire plan is based on the work of Christ on our behalf. Earlier, I mentioned that most every person, if they're honest, realizes something within them is broken. And often our response to that brokenness is to try our own plan of redemption, right? I mean, this is, this is human nature. Our own plan of redemption, which is always rooted in self-effort, right? Try hard to be a good person, New Year's resolutions, change your attitude, follow the golden rule. It's all about us in our own effort trying to make ourselves acceptable to God. We're trying to redeem ourselves, and it doesn't work. Our self-improvement plans for redemption do not do anything to change what is fundamentally wrong with us. Our hearts are sinful. Our relationship with God is broken. But God's plan works. 
God gave his son in order to establish a way for redemption to happen. When we repent of our sin and place our trust in Jesus, we become a part of God's story. We experience redemption. No more condemnation. We are loved and accepted by God. We are given a new heart, a heart that wants to follow God. It's amazing. It's an amazing plan. And all this is great, but it's not the end of God's story. It's not the end. We've talked about creation in the fall and redemption, but there is one more element in this amazing story, and that element is restoration. Restoration. God's plan is not just about providing for our redemption. His plan also involves bringing restoration to our world. And what this means is that once we are redeemed, we then become a part of God's plan to restore this broken world. God's story doesn't end with redemption. And then this is why a major theme in the teaching of Jesus is the theme of God's kingdom, his rule, his influence advancing, not in a political way or in a forceful way, but rather through acts of love and and compassion, and, and sacrifice, and generosity, and healing. We become influencers for Jesus in our families, in our neighborhoods, in our workplace, in our school, in our, in our society. Because of the Spirit living in us, we are able to be active participants in God's story, in His plan of restoration. Now, in the book of Genesis... This particular theme is powerfully revealed in in various places. One is when Abraham is called by God to be the father of the nation of Israel. And God says to him, notice what God says to him, Genesis 12. This is right when he's calling Abraham to be the father of this nation. I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you I will curse and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Notice what God is ultimately interested in. Again, this is all the way back in Genesis. What God is ultimately interested in. All peoples on earth will be blessed through you, through Abraham. That's God's heart. His ultimate plan is to bring restoration to this sin-stained world. Okay, that's That's the the vision for this. And then we see a picture of this being played out in the story of Joseph, which we're going to be looking at in the weeks to come. Joseph starts out as an arrogant, spoiled teenager, hated by his brothers, and then he experiences these horribly, horribly unjust circumstances. He spends years in prison, falsely accused. But what happens at the end of the story is that God orchestrates this amazing turn of events and Joseph ends up being elevated to a position of authority and being used to rescue the entire nation of Egypt from a famine. We're we're, we're, we're going to see also how God works in the hearts of Joseph's brothers um, who were filled with hatred and violence and yet they learn to care for each other in a way that's transformative. It's amazing story and it's an amazing picture of this truth. God's plan is to use his people 
to be instruments of restoration to a broken and hurting world. We are to be a part of this story. That's what he invites us into. Okay, so now you know the most important story in the universe. Now you know God's story. By rooting your life in this story, you can have meaning and significance and purpose. But not only that, you can now share this story with others who don't know God. You may have thought you don't know how to share the gospel and all that, you know, I don't know how to share the gospel. Now you do. When an opportunity arises, you can share with someone God's story. So, so let's just review the four elements of God's story, the four elements of the gospel. First is creation, right? We are created in God's image with a purpose. His purpose is good. Everyone's created in his image. Second, the fall, right? The fall. Even though we are created in God's image, we have been damaged by sin. It impacts every one of us, every aspect of our lives and our world. It's created a barrier between us and God and between us and other people. And even though we can't do anything to fix ourselves, God did something, which, which is the third element in God's story. Redemption. Redemption. Jesus, God's son, died on a cross to pay for our sins and he rose from the dead to give us life and power over sin. When we place our trust in him, we are redeemed. We are delivered from the penalty and the power of sin. And once that happens, we can experience the fourth element of God's story. Restoration. Restoration. We become a part of God's plan to restore this broken world. We get to be instruments of his love and his mercy and his healing and his grace and truth so that we can bring restoration to those around us. This is God's story. This is the gospel. Creation, fall, Redemption, restoration. What an amazing story it is. And it's real. It's true. So where do you find yourself in in this amazing story? Where do you find yourself in this amazing story? Let's pray together. Let's just prayerfully think about that question. Where do you find yourself in this story? It begins with creation. That you have value, you have worth. And so do the people around you. Creation, God is God, the the center of the universe is God, not you or me. We're accountable to him. He is our creator. So, Father, we thank you for this element of this story. That you are at the center of the universe. That we are created beings at your initiative. The world doesn't revolve around us. It revolves around you. And we are accountable to you. You are worthy to receive glory and honor and praise our worship. And we give you praise as creator. 
which leads to the second part of this story, right? The fall. Just take an honest look at yourself. Look at ourselves. We know we're broken. We know we're broken. We see the evidences of that all around us. And one of the one of the ways we enter into this story is by admitting that. By admitting that. Maybe there are some of you here and you've never admitted to God the fact that you are a sinner, that you are self-centered, you're rebellious, you do your own thing, your heart is filled with pride, you don't love others the way that you, you, you want to or you know you're supposed to. You're trying to find life in all sorts of other things that don't bring life and yet you continue to go to those things. It's like they have a power over you. We know we're broken. And so to enter into this part of God's story means admitting that. So let's just take a moment, just in the quiet of your heart, admit to God your need. That in your own power, you are a sinner. Lord, we confess this. We hide, we blame. Our hearts are filled with pride and self-centeredness. We acknowledge that. We confess that to you. We confess our brokenness. Well, the third part of the story is redemption. God sending his son, Jesus, to earth. Dying on a cross in our place. Taking the penalty we deserve to pay. Jesus paid the penalty for all of our sin. And then he rose from the dead. Let me just ask, have you entered into this part of the story? Have you placed your trust in Jesus alone for your relationship with God? It's not about your effort, your goodness, trying to clean up your act. It's just about Jesus. Some of you here may think, oh, I need to, I need to stop swearing. I need to stop doing this. I need to, stop, I need to clean up my life, and then God will accept me. That's not, that's not the gospel. Jesus came to you in the midst of your sin and mine. He, he wants us to stop trying to clean up our own lives and instead place our trust in him, letting him do that work. There are some of you here, and, and you want to place your trust in Jesus to be a part of this amazing plan, this amazing story. And let, let me lead you in a prayer where you can do that. Dear God, I, I've just admitted my sin a moment ago, and now I am wanting to place my trust in you, Jesus, who died on the cross for me. I place my whole self in your hands, all my sin and my pride and my fears and my failures, my addictions, all of me, I place on your shoulders. I can't change me, but you can. And I ask you to do that. I ask you to change me from the inside out through the power of your love. 
Lord, I want to pray for anyone who prayed that prayer. Help them grow in this relationship. And there are others of us here. We know this part of the story. We've placed our trust in Jesus. But let me ask you, are you living in the reality of this story? That you are loved. You are adopted into God's family. His spirit lives in you. He's given you a new heart, new desires. Lord, I want to pray for the rest of us here that we would grow in our understanding of redemption. We have been redeemed. You have given us a new heart. And I pray, Holy Spirit, you would fill us and help us walk in that new heart, pursuing the things that we know are are aligned with you and doing so in your power. Thanks for loving us. And then the final element of this story, restoration. Now that you and I are in this relationship with God, he calls us to be a part of his restoration. So what does that look like for you? in your family, in your workplace, your school, your neighborhood. Why don't you take a moment just in the quiet of your heart and, and, and say, Lord, this coming year, I, I want to be a part of your restoration project, whatever that looks like. If it's going on a mission trip somewhere, if it's loving my neighbor or a fellow classmate, reaching out to someone who's hurting. God, what what does it look like to be a part of your restoration of a broken and hurting world? We ask you to fill us, Holy Spirit. Fill us and use us for your glory. Lord, we want to be a part of this story in a significant way. All the other stories we hear all the other things that distract and, and, and attract our attention are, are ultimately pale in comparison to, compared to your story and our being a part of your story. Thank you for making a way for us to step into your story through the work of Jesus. And we pray that you would use us in a powerful way to spread this story to communicate this story to a hurting world. We ask you to do that this coming year in a a significant way through us, through our church. Use, Use us, Lord. Why don't, why don't we stand? The worship team is going to lead us here in, in, a, in some response. I want to encourage you. If at some point you want to sit down, that's fine. You can kneel up front here if you want to as well. We also have intercessors that are available um, just along the, the walls here. I have a couple people. Just, they have red lanyards. If you have a prayer need and you're needing some restoration, you're needing God to touch a particular situation in your life or a relationship or whatever, these people would love to pray for you. You can just slip out of your seat Look for a person along the wall there with a red lanyard. They would love to pray with you. And then you can just go back to your seat. And so, Lord, I want to pray for our intercessors tonight that are ministering in this way. You would use them to be instruments of restoration and healing and life. 
We love you. Thank you for being our creator. Thank you for this story you've invited us into. And we celebrate that. We worship you for being such an amazing God. 